All right, good morning, guys. My name's Reed, and I'm a missional community leader here at BC. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited to share with you guys, um, you know, what God is continually, continually teaching me through Haggai. And so this morning, we're going to be picking up right where we left off last week in the book of Haggai. So if you guys want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, it's near the end of the Old Testament, right after Zephaniah and right before Zechariah. Today, we're going to be looking at uh, the second and final chapter of Haggai. And if you're using one of the Bibles underneath your chairs, it's on page number uh, 791. And for those of you guys who were here last week, you'll remember that the book of Haggai takes place in the year 520 BC. So this is about 20 years after the Israelites have returned from being in exile. And uh, they've come back. And and, in Haggai chapter 1, we saw God encouraging his people to consider their ways, right? They had been busying themselves with building their own house uh, and neglecting what God had told them to do, neglecting to rebuild God's house, to rebuild the temple. And so God told them to go up into the, to the hills and to gather wood and to begin rebuilding the temple. And then at the end of chapter one, we read about how God moved in the spirit of the leaders and of the people to actually go and to be obedient and to begin to rebuild the temple. And so as we'll read here in chapter two, uh, this, the, the events and messages here in chapter 2 are going to start about one month after uh, the end of chapter 1, after they began rebuilding the temple. And so let's go ahead and read that together. Again, this is Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his full bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. 
but from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and say, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and the riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being uh, a loving God like we just sang about and for being a faithful God, a God who answers um, your, your, your promises. You fulfill um, all that you say you will. Um, you, we've seen that um, and we can see that in your word and we can trust that and know that for the future and I pray that that would help us to walk in obedience Uh, to work knowing that you are with us. And so I pray you'd speak through your word this morning um, and God, that it would be for your name and for your glory. And we ask this in your son's name, amen. So last week we we saw that the the main idea of Haggai 1 was that we are meant to live not for our own glory or comfort, but for the sake of God and for his glory. And so the, the main idea of Haggai 2 actually helps to build upon this message because it helps to give encouragement to actually live for God's glory rather than our own. And so the main idea for the, me, for the message of, of Haggai 2 can be summed up as this. We can walk in obedience because God is with us and he is faithful to his promises. We can walk in obedience because God is with us and he is faithful to his promises. So let's look again at verse 1. It says, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. And so the Israelite calendar is a little bit different than ours. Uh, In fact, the seventh month for them would actually be the the tenth month for us, which means that this message came through Haggai exactly 2,269 years ago this month. Um, it would be the, the time of October. And it would also mean there would be feast time in Israel. This, this is when they would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, which means there would be a huge crowd of people that would be gathered uh, that would be able to hear this, this message that the Lord brings through Haggai. And verses 2 and 3 give us the first part of the Lord's message. It says, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So last week we didn't end up talking a ton about these leaders of the the Israelites, of the returned exiles, but their identities are going to become a little bit more important for chapter 2. Zerubbabel was described as as a governor of Judah, not as the king of Judah, because at this point uh, Israel was was still not uh, their own sovereign nation. They were still dependent on the Persian Empire. But Nevertheless, Zerubbabel does come from a royal lineage. It traces all the way back to King David. In fact, he was the grandson of Jehoiakim, who was the the king that was on the throne whenever the Babylonians came in and and, and carried them off into exile. And so while, while Zerubbabel is the political leader of the people, then Joshua, this high priest, he was the religious leader of uh, the people. And like Zerubbabel, Joshua had an important lineage that traced all the way back to Aaron, the the first high priest for Israel. And although life expectancy was significantly lower during biblical times, it seems there must have been at least a few 
older members that were there among the returned exiles that must have remembered Solomon's temple before it was destroyed 66 years earlier because Haggai asked, you know, who had seen the, the temple? You know, is it not as nothing in your eyes? The second temple that they're rebuilding here was really quite a modest structure compared to the grandeur of the, the, the first temple built by Solomon. It, it paled in comparison, so much so that Ezra 3 actually tells us that when these older members of the congregation saw the new temple being rebuilt, the second temple, it says that they wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the temple was laid before their eyes. But nevertheless, the attitudes here of, of, of this, uh, these people that, that were comparing it back to Solomon's temple, you know, comparing things back to the, the good old days, it, it wasn't really helping that much. In fact, a lot of times comparing our work to the work of others can be pretty detrimental. It can be distracting, a way that the enemy can, can use to kind of get us off from, from what God is calling us to do. I mean, we can, we can look around and we can see that maybe, you know, compared to other people, we, we do so much more. We do things better, and so then we become proud in our hearts. Or we can look around and we see that, you know, um, what I do just doesn't even measure up to what that person's doing. So I might as well not even do anything at all, right? Like if, if I can't build a temple like Solomon, I might as well not even build at all. But at the heart of this, there, there's, there's a huge problem because it's based, this way of thinking is based on, on a misunderstanding of exactly who God is because the fact of the matter is that, is that nothing... Nothing is worthy of God. Even, even Solomon's magnificent temple in all of its glory uh, fell short, fell far short of the glory of God. I mean, it was just a mere shadow, uh, resemblance of the glory that it was made to represent. And so if we deceive ourselves into thinking that we can actually do something or accomplish something that's worthy of the glory of God, then our understanding of ourselves is much too big. And our understanding of God is, is much too small. So comparing our gifts and our accomplishments to others, whether in, in the present or in the past, that's a truly futile endeavor, right? Once we really recognize the glory of God. And, and so therefore, in, in verses 4 and 5, we see God transition his people from looking back on, on the past to now looking at present action. He says, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong. All you people of the land, declares the Lord, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. So God addresses this command to, to Zerubbabel and then to, to Joshua and then to all the people telling them to, to be strong. Not only was this rebuilding process difficult and required strong perseverance, but it also required courage because the book of Ezra tells us that some of the other neighboring uh, countries around Israel, they weren't super excited about the Israelites returning and they really weren't excited about them rebuilding the temple so much so that they even, you know, sought to, to, to stop the rebuilding process. But God's command here, it's, it's clear. It says, be strong. And I feel like this could be a nice popular verse, right? Be strong, like one that would go well on like a coffee mug or like an inspirational calendar, perhaps. I mean, few would take issue with this, uh, you know, this, this, this encouragement to, you know, hey, be strong. But it's also important to look at this whole verse and, and its context because that's what it gives this imperative such, such of a, a foundation and a, and a meaning and a reason behind it. Because it's not just a command to be strong in the sense that we need to somehow like draw up strength from within ourselves or put on a tough face or 
tell ourselves, I, I got to be strong. I can do this, right? God's command to, to return exiles to be strong, it, it's backed by incredible promises. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. They can be strong because they know that their God was, was with them in the midst of their work. And if you remember from last week, this term, Lord of hosts, you know, probably as I was reading through the passage, you're like, wow, it repeats that over and over and over again. You know, Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts. That's a reference to uh, the host is, is, is armies, is soldiers of angels that are at God's disposal. And so it's this all-powerful God that was with them. This is what gave them encouragement to be strong and to have courage when they were working. And not only does the, the presence of the almighty Lord of hosts enable them to be strong, but they also could have full assurance that this is not just any powerful God, but this is their almighty Lord of hosts. He says he is for them. I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So there's a promise here in which the Israelites could take comfort. When, when God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt with the, uh, the ten plagues, he made a covenant with them. He made a promise, a bond, that they would be his treasured people, that he would love and, and take care of and, and protect uh, his people as his, as his own people. And the same power that brought them out of Egypt was now with them, empowering them and, and protecting them and giving them the courage to rebuild the temple. And they knew they knew that God was, was faithful to his promises. You know, they could go back and read his word like Deuteronomy 7, 9, which told them to know, therefore, the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. The Israelites and Haggai's day could have courage and, and be strong as they worked to rebuild the temple because God was with them and he was for them according to his promises, according to his covenant with them. And in verses 6 and 7, Haggai continues to relay God's message to the Israelites, saying, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So this is honestly where the book of Haggai gets a little bit more difficult to understand. I had to put in a lot of, a lot of study this week. I mean, what, what does it mean that he's going to shake the, the earth and the heavens and, and the nations? And it's probably best to, to look first at the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy. Verse 7 is especially helpful in interpreting this oracle because it speaks of shaking the nations so that the treasures of all nations come in. So therefore, it's saying that God is, is shaking the, the earth and the nations to bring in the wealth of these people. And then verse 8 also supports this interpretation for it says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And since Israel at this time remained primarily an agricultural society, the image that was likely intended here would be like a ripe olive tree or, or a ripe fig tree that the harvesters would actually go up and, and shake the tree in order to knock loose the fruit and, and bring it down um, so that the farmers could use that. And so since God here, he says, you know, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, he, he owns all things, uh, all the wealth of the world is his, so he can, he can shake it loose and, and use it for whatever purposes he desires. And in Ezra 6, we actually find out that, that God ends up doing exactly what he said he, he would. He, he's faithful to his promise because the Persian king Darius says that, uh, makes a decree that, the Israelites rebuilding the temple is going to be paid for out of Persia's 
own royal revenue. So God provides, he shakes the nations in order to provide for rebuilding the temple. And then in verse 9, we're told that the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So in the same way that the sovereign God works in the heart of the, the, the Persian king to provide the resources for rebuilding the temple, uh, later God works actually in the heart of King Herod to expand the temple rebuilt by the uh, returned exiles. Because although the, the, the original temple that they're rebuilding right now, is, as we're reading in Haggai, you know, that could hardly be said to be greater than Solomon's temple. I mean, it was, it was, it was much smaller, not nearly as ornate. But Herod uh, later renovated it, and it ended up being twice the size of this temple rebuilt by, or sorry, twice the size of Solomon's temple, uh, even from before. And so in this sense, it, it becomes greater uh, than Solomon's. And then in verse 10, we, we move forward about two months to hear Haggai's next message to the people. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carried holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. And so this may initially seem kind of like a strange question. The, the priests here were entrusted with the keeping of God's law. And so God has... Haggai asked them this question, that if, if a priest takes like a piece of meat that has been consecrated, that has been made holy, and, and carries it in, in the fold of his robe, then does that, 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 the hem of his robe, if he touches something else with that, does it make that thing holy? And uh, the priest clearly answered, no, no, it, it doesn't. So in other words, you, you can't transfer holiness uh, from one thing to the next just by touching the same thing, like their robes. And so Haggai then asks his follow-up question in verse 13. If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. So this is the opposite of the first question. According to the Old Testament, you know, there were a number of ways to become unclean, and, and coming into contact with a dead body was one of them. So if someone touched a dead body and then touches an item like food, then that food became unclean. So in other words, you know, holiness could not be transferred from one thing to the next by touching the same thing, but uh, uncleanliness could be transferred in this way. And so what, you know, what's the point of all this? Why, why is God having Haggai ask these questions? I mean, Haggai explains the meaning here in verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. So it appears that although, you know, before they had begun to rebuild the temple and the temple had been rebuilt, they had been offering sacrifices to God. But just because they were in the promised land didn't automatically make these, these sacrifices holy. In fact, the ruined exiles, or sorry, the, the, the returned exiles still had the, the skeleton of the ruined temple there among their midst. It was like a defiling corpse uh, there among them. And God told them to rebuild the temple, and, and they hadn't yet. And so even as they sought to offer sacrifices to God, what they offered was unclean. It, it was tainted by the fact that they hadn't done first what God had told them to do, rebuild the temple, right? They're, they're offering sacrifices, but they still hadn't done the first thing that God had asked them to do. And so because the priorities of their hearts had been wrong, uh, their offerings here to God were, were contaminated. And although the, these Jewish customs of, of uncleanliness and holiness 
can seem really far removed from our time and from our culture, I think it's still just as relevant to us because for much in the same way, uh, our good actions, you know, the things that we might be saying that we're intending to do for God can be uh, tainted by, by the wrong heart. If we're doing some sort of act for God, whether that be some sort of ministry or some sort of spiritual discipline, but we're doing it for the wrong motivations or we're, we're doing it while we're neglecting the, something else, the primary thing that God has asked us to do, then it's just like the offerings of the Israelites here. Uh, while they neglected the temple, every work of their hands was unclean in God's sight. And Haggai tells them in verse 15 to consider from this day onward before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. So these verses here are really an echo of what we read last week in chapter 1 because Haggai is reminding us how uh, God, like a, like a loving and disciplining father, was frustrating their efforts to build their own house and to build their own wealth because they were not willing to rebuild his house. But now they, they have repented and they, they are working uh, to rebuild the temple. And so Haggai makes it clear in verses 18 and 19 that they should consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day the foundation of the Lord was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. So because the Israelites had finally trusted the Lord, were finally being obedient in rebuilding the temple, the Lord told them he would no longer cripple their produce, but that he would bless them. But to keep them from thinking that this prosperity is going to be the result of their own devices, he's making it clear here that their coming abundance is only a result of God's blessing, and that this blessing is only coming now because they have been obedient. And then in, in, in the final four verses of Haggai, we really get to the, the climax of the book. So having, having encouraged the workers as, as they work to rebuild the temple and, and having addressed their hearts, uh, Haggai's final message now, now, is now turning and looking clearly to the future. It says, The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and of nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and the riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. So this concluding message is addressed actually just to Zerubbabel, the political leader of the returned exiles. And while Sheikh earlier referred to harvesting the wealth of the nations, here it seems more for the purpose of, of overthrowing and even destroying. The phrase, the horses and the riders shall go down, that, that's very similar language uh, to the song of Moses in Exodus 15, which was celebrating when God delivered the Israelites. You know, when, when Pharaoh's army went in after them in the Red Sea, uh, God uh, caused the horse and rider to be thrown into the Red Sea and, and you know, destroyed uh, Israel's enemies so that they could uh, be safe and be free. And so in a very similar way, Haggai here is envisioning a future day of the Lord where, where Israel's enemies will be destroyed, even by, by turning on one another. For it says that they'll be brought down, every one, by the sword of his brother. But even more intriguing than these destructive events that, this, that, that Haggai delivers... Uh, 
the, the message in, in the final verse is the one that I get really excited about. It says that on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. This here is an incredible promise. The Lord of hosts, who has all the angel armies at his disposal, he's promising to take Zerubbabel, his servant, and make him like a signet ring. God calling someone my servant in the Old Testament was a title that was reserved for those that were appointed for a special task. And it was especially associated with with David and and David's uh, descendant that God promised would sit on the throne forever, the coming Messiah. And if you remember from earlier, Zerubbabel was from the line of David. In fact, Jeremiah 22, 24 to 25 speaks of Zerubbabel's grandfather, Jehoiakim, being like God's signet ring until God tore him off when when the the Babylonians came and carried them into exile. This signet ring was was a ring worn by the kings that had like a personalized emblem on it that they would press into wax in order to to certify uh, letters and other documents as being genuinely from the king. And so the the ring, therefore, is is being used to designate authority and, and honor and ownership and the Lord is making Zerubbabel a, a signet ring in this passage. It means that, that God is reinstating this Davidic line through which the Messiah is prophesied to come. And in this way, Zerubbabel functions as a type of Christ, as a, as a forerunner that points forward to the coming Messiah from David's line. And you'll notice that Zerubbabel was given this honor not because of anything within himself, any, any merits or excellencies that, that are found within himself, But God says he will make him like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. So the the exaltation of Zerubbabel here is attributed to nothing else but God's grace towards him. So God had shown mercy to his people in rebuilding things after exile, and now it remained for God to bring the promised Messiah through David's line, through Zerubbabel's line. And that's why it's so significant that, that over 500 years later, the first verse in the New Testament tells us that in Matthew 1, 1, that the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This promise to Zerubbabel was fulfilled in Jesus. In fact, all these promises in the book of Haggai are completed in Jesus. Paul tells us that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Back in verse 9, we read that the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give Peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And so although Herod had expanded the temple you know, physically, the fact that God promises to bring peace gives us a glimpse that there's also something more to this prophecy here. Peace, here is the word shalom, which, which means more than just the absence of conflict. I mean, it speaks of, of well-being, of everything being exactly as it should be, of being whole and being complete. It calls for more than just a new building It calls for the promised prince of peace. Because when Jesus came to earth and took on flesh, he came to make peace, to make shalom between man and God. He was the new temple. Even though a lot of people during his time didn't realize this. I mean, in in John 2, we read about how the Jews were were marveling at, at Herod's renovated temple. And Jesus tells them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days. But then John tells us that that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. And when Jesus died on the cross, he bore God's wrath that we deserve for our sins. 
And thus, through this, he, he made peace. He made shalom between us and God. And then three days later, exactly as he said he would, he rose again from the dead. And then he continues his work of bringing peace through us, through, through the church. 1 Corinthians speaks of us as the body of Christ and being, being a temple of the Holy Spirit, a temple that will include people from all nations. The 4th century theologian Augustine once said, Surely the glory of the house of the New Testament is greater than that of the old because it was built of better materials, namely those living stones that are human beings renewed by faith and grace. And what's more, we can, we can look forward and see Jesus fulfill even more of this prophecy because in Revelation 21, the Apostle John speaks of Jesus coming back and he's bringing a new heaven and a new earth and with it a new city a new Jerusalem, and, and John says that he saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Just like we saw in Haggai, the new temple, in this new temple, the glory of the nations will be brought in. People from every tribe and nation and tongue will come and worship the Lord and we'll see him face to face. And Jesus even brings new light to Haggai's illustration here about unclean hearts because as we've been reading in the Gospel of Luke, we've seen that Jesus just flips the whole paradigm when it comes to uncleanliness and, uh, and holiness because, right, in Haggai's day, you know, if you touch something unclean, you became unclean and you couldn't, you know, become holy by, by just by touching something holy. But with Jesus, this, this gets turned on its head because he was so perfect and he was so holy and he was God himself that when he touched something unclean, like the, the flesh of a, of a leper, Jesus didn't become unclean. In fact, the leper became clean. The leper became cured of his disease. And so this just further demonstrates that our greatest need is not to get things right or, or to... to to do the, the right external actions, but that our greatest need is Jesus. Only he can transform our hearts and only he can, can cause us to be able to do the things that we're supposed to do for the reasons that God has called us to do them. And so let us rejoice that we can serve a God who's faithful to his promises and we can see this most clearly by all of his promises being fulfilled in Christ. And so therefore, let us walk in obedience, knowing that the mighty Lord of hosts is with us. He's, he's in us by the Holy Spirit. And he works all things according to the counsel of his will. So while the Israelites struggled to begin and even to persevere in the rebuilding of the temple, we often struggle to, to begin and to, to persevere in the things that God has called us to do. You know, we make, we make excuses for why we don't share the gospel. or We try to justify habits that, that take our time and our holiness. And we're not usually willing to make sacrifices that, that are needed to make uh, in order to love people well. But God is with us. He, he dwells in us by his spirit, and he's called us to be a part of his new temple, the church, the body of Christ, through which he is reconciling the world back to himself. And I think we can take tremendous encouragement in knowing that we will win. It will be successful. At the end of all things, Jesus is coming back. He's faithful to his promises, he will come back and he will once and for all put, put sin and put Satan to death and he'll make all things new and we can enjoy and glorify God forever 
in the new Jerusalem, wherein God himself will be the temple, and he will shine on us like the sun. And we know this is true, and we know this is coming, because God has promised it. And we have seen him be faithful to his promises in the past, and so therefore we can know he's going to be faithful to his promises in the future. We can walk in obedience because God is with us, and he is faithful to his promises. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, I invite you to, to, to begin by, by taking some time to pray in your seats and confess to the Lord the ways that you've not been faithful to him, the ways that you haven't been walking in obedience, the ways that you've been doing things with, with an unclean heart. And then thank the Father that he was faithful to what he said he would do. He did send the promised Messiah so that his blood could be shed for us. And, and thank Jesus for his obedience, that he trusted the Father every step of the way, even to the point of his body being broken for us on the cross. And then thank the Holy Spirit that he's changed your heart, that the Spirit has worked in you to believe this good news, to believe in the gospel, and then ask the Spirit to apply these very truths to your heart this morning. And then when you're, when you're finished praying, you can come up to one of the tables, you can take the elements, consume them, and return back to your seats. And anyone here who has placed their faith in Christ alone for their salvation can participate, can celebrate with us. But if you're here and you don't yet know Jesus as your Savior, then I ask you to refrain from, from taking the Lord's Supper because it doesn't make sense for you yet. And, and instead, I plead with you to talk to me or to talk to someone here that you know about what it looks like to trust in Christ because he promises, a sure promise, that he will save anyone who calls on him. And, and you can know that and you can trust him. So let's pray. Father, thank you for being uh, a God that is so faithful to us, that loves us, that though so many times we are, we are faithless and we aren't doing what you asked us to do, God, that you are with us and you empower us to be obedient. And we can know that you are faithful. We can know that uh, you will do what you said you've done because you've done that in the past. We can see that through Jesus. You answered these, these promises that you gave in Haggai. And may we rejoice and praise you for this. And as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, may, we, um, may you convict our hearts of sin. And may we, we see your glory and your beauty, Father. Um, and I just, I just pray that it would be uh, for your glory that we would love you more and treasure you more. And I pray this in Jesus' name.